Well, in this uh, sermon this morning, we'll verify those last statements in that bumper video. God has marked everything out. Do you believe that? I do. And the more I see the scripture come alive, the more I'm convinced of it. Have you ever heard of reverse chronology? Reverse chronology is, uh, is really a method of storytelling, and uh, that's where the plot is revealed in reverse order. I mean, if, you, uh, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you remember one of those uh, episodes back in the late 90s called The Betrayal, where they started at the end, and then they worked backwards through the entire... It was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. But it's more than hilarious. It's, it's actually enlightening and encouraging as you think back through the steps that led you to Christ, if indeed uh, you know him. The motion picture industry did not invent reverse chronology. Last I checked, Revelation 13, 8 says that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Work back from that. And in Romans, uh, we're told And where we left off, the Apostle Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be. But how are they going to call on him whom they've not believed? How are they going to believe on the one they've not heard of? How are they going to hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? That's reverse chronology. By the way, look at your feet right now. Just check them out. No, don't take your shoes off. Please, don't take your shoes off. How are they looking? We don't normally think of feet as uh, something attractive to look at, do we? Unless you're a podiatrist, I guess. But the next verse says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Bring glad tidings of good things. When I trace back my own life on September 6, 1982, I called upon the name of the Lord out of desperation, trusted him as my savior. But if I start to, I've done that, I've traced it back, but it kind of, I lose the link. Here's the guy that witnessed to me, his name was Nick, the guy at John Deere, but before that was my brother Mike, who for about four or five years had been sharing Christ with me, and before that I was getting sort of tired of my sin, it wasn't going anywhere, I I saw my aimlessness, and then before that I could go all the way back to the Catholic high school where I went to, and a religion class where my brother Mike sat and they brought in, they brought in, the nun had an idea of bringing in all of the other faiths that were around. It was sort of a big ecumenical push then. And they, put, and they brought in uh, Protestants and liberal Methodists and uh, Episcopalians. And my brother Mike told the story of a, this was, a, this was in 1970, he told the story of a long, hippie, long-haired, hippie-looking dude who came in. He was the youth pastor. Apparently, the senior pastor couldn't come, so the youth pastor of this church that was uh, in the area came in and just sat there. My brother Mike said, I listened to all those other guys talk about their religion, and this guy talked about Jesus. And he talked about how personal Jesus was to him. And my brother said, for the very first time, I, somebody made God personal to me. And at that point, the link for me starts to kind of falls off. I wish I knew where that guy heard the gospel and, and so on and so forth, because I know I could trace it back all the way to eternity past, and someday I'll be able to do that. In this passage of Scripture, you have all of these hows. How will they call? 
on the one they had not believed in? How will they believe in the one they've not heard? How will they hear, you know, unless somebody preaches? To, how will they preach unless somebody sent to? How, 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 how? Those five questions stand as a total antithesis to the extreme view that since God chooses and saves, his followers need not expend themselves and their efforts for others to bring them to Jesus. Actually, that type of thinking betrays one's ignorance of the Bible and of the very call of God. And Jesus, who said even before he died and rose again, when he said, you know, pray. Listen, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's what you need to do. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Have you ever read that? And then, of course, he did say, go, go into all the world. Make disciples and baptize them while you're doing it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them whatever I've commanded you. And then you've got the Apostle Paul's own words. Paul was a Calvinist before there was such a thing. When he said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain faith. They may obtain salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I love that. It's one of my favorite verses on evangelism in the Bible because Paul says, I am busting my hiney to bring the gospel to people. What people? The people God's already chosen. Oh, okay. But it's like Spurgeon said, you know, if you can show, show me a big E stamped on their back, I'll just talk to them. Otherwise, everybody's getting it. <laughs> the sequence of reverse chronology here reveals a genuine concern, particularly for Jews, because this is a very Jewish section, but what's good for the Jew is good for the Gentile, especially in this uh, aspect of bringing the gospel and making God renowned around the world, that all the nations may someday bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And our text here lays out several obstacles and yet startling results in our efforts to reach people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Let's just read the text, and we, we pick it up in verse 14. And I, I, so this is what I quoted a little bit earlier. How shall they call on him whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, we've heard, uh, what, what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I ask it, have they not all heard? Indeed they have for Their voice, Psalm 19, has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. We talked about that. It's called natural revelation. Revelation 1, God has sort of thrown this echo of himself out to the world. That's not enough to save anybody, but it's enough to give them a clear understanding that he exists, right? Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says in Deuteronomy, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. That would be the Gentiles, us who are not Jews. Then Isaiah, back to Isaiah, uh, verse 20, is so bold as to say, I have been found, I love this word, I'll come back to it, by those who did not seek me. I have been shown myself. 
I have shown myself rather to those who did not ask for me, but of Israel, he says, all day long, held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. So this, this, this lets us know, this is, we're still, it's a very Jewish text, but all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Amen? There's application here for all of us. And if you look, I mean, I mean, if you look at the, there are obstacles and startling results. I'll quickly go through them because I want to focus more personally here this morning. There's the sheer need in verses 14 and 15. How, 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 how? The sheer need. There's, there's the small labor force that's implied here. How, somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to go. Amy Carmichael had a dream uh, Amy Carmel, the great missionary to India, had a dream, and she, you can read about her dream sometime. I, I was going to copy it and read it to you, but our time won't allow me to do that. But in her dream, she saw masses of people walking toward a cliff and just falling out a mother and her child, a father and his child, and just falling off the precipice, and nobody stopping them, nobody doing anything to keep it from happening. And then throughout the dream, she did see pockets of what she would perceive as, as missionaries or gospel preachers, anybody who would just tell people about Jesus, but they were so, just to envision this whole platform, just masses of people walking off the cliff, but there'd only be one person talking to somebody here, and maybe somebody else talking to somebody here, and in between, people were just falling off the cliff, and she saw there the great need for mission work. Interestingly, in her dream, she saw people making, um, I can't remember what she called it, daisies, something, making daisies, paper daisies or something like that, with their backs to everybody. They were Christians. This was in her dream. That it was Christians who loved, loved the, study, the study of daisies. And the idea being, you know, the study of theology, I guess, but could care less about the people falling off the precipice. Very powerful dream. Look it up sometime. It wasn't in my notes. That's the freebie. I'll probably forget the next message. But there is a soaring rejection rate. We see that here too. I mean, who's going to believe? Nobody's believing us. Talks about Israel and how obstinate they are. Then there are, yet there are stunning conversions. He's found by those who didn't seek me, verse 20. And you look around, how many would say, how many here would admit, admit I know Jesus, but I got to admit, I really wasn't looking for him. This is so me. This is so me. But then it gets all of us because no one seeks after God, right? Romans 3, 10, 11, right? No one. Nobody seeks after God on their own. So when you say, well, you know, my little boy, he's so spiritually astute. You know, he, let me tell you something. That has nothing to do with your boy. That has everything to do with God. If that little boy or that little girl is seeking Jesus, you thank God for that. It's not because you're such a great parent. Praise God that you are teaching him truths. And praise God that he's responding. But that's God who does that. Because God finds people who aren't looking for him. That's what the Bible says. Remember that. God finds people who aren't looking for him. I think we just sang about it. So I want to focus, first I want to focus on hearing. How they're going to hear without a preacher. The question I have in my mind, hear what? That begs the question, what are they actually hearing? And just, just what did the Apostle Paul mean when he told Timothy, he said, before he died, he said, Timothy, preach the word. 
in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and good teaching, good doctrine. I'm telling you, the time is going to come when men won't put up with sound doctrine any longer. They'll heap for themselves teachers because their ears want to be tickled. He says, to sort of gather about them their own desires, their own passions. They'll turn away their, from listening to the truth. Is Paul speaking in that passage of Scripture only about false preaching? Or would, or would that include weak preaching? Or entertaining preaching? Or perhaps, dare I say, highly intellectual preaching? He's certainly not referring to dull preaching. People put up with dull preaching. They're not drawn to it, right? It's a little bit like music. I mean, some of you like classical music. Some of you like traditional. You like contemporary. Some of you like rock. Some of you like rap. Some of you like country. Recently, I was in a church meeting that, I, uh, that put up operatic music like it was supposedly spiritual because it was operatic. I, I don't know. I thought my glasses were going to break. It's not my, but whatever. The point is that we all develop tastes. And Paul is saying here, they, they, he's saying here, fleshly minded people only have taste for that which fits their likes. I, I read a story. I, Harry Ironside was the pastor of the Moody Church many years ago, and Harry Ironside talked about Gypsy Smith. Has anybody ever heard of Gypsy Smith? Raise your hand if you ever heard of him, okay? Just a few of you have. You know, he's got some pretty, there's some crazy stories. He was an evangelist. He was a gypsy, got saved when he was young, uh, preached the gospel. I've quoted him once on Revival, once a pretty cool quote. But Ironside says that Gypsy Smith came to his church at Moody Church and preached He told about his gypsy experience, and he just had people on the edges of their seats as he talked about his gypsy life, as he talked about the awfulness of it all and and being turned back to God and all of this. And At the end of the sermon, he had people in tears, and he just, he called for an altar call, and people, Ironside, by the hundreds were coming down. And this is what Ironside said. But I didn't know what they were coming down for. He said, I thought to myself, did they want to be gypsies? He said, and I quote, he didn't give them anything to believe in. Now, if that was happening 150 years ago, let me tell you something. It's happening in spades right now. Lewis Berry Schaefer, the great Professor at Dallas Seminary years ago said, Men, remember you have never preached the gospel until you have given people something to believe, something God has done that their minds can grasp, something that can use, they can use as a basis for understanding what God has offered to them, their salvation, unquote. And Paul picks up this theme of hearing in verse 17 when he says, Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the message or the word of Christ. And and I this was I didn't realize how indelibly impressed upon me this was until later on. 
But just a day after I was saved, one day after I was saved, I received a letter from my brother. And uh, I taped it in the back of my Bible. I've shown this before, but here's the actual letter. And this is what I got. And it even has the date. That's one day after I became a Christian. He didn't know I was a Christian when he wrote this to me. And he says, you know, Bible is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. Mark Twain once said, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture, which they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages of Scripture which trouble me the most are those I do understand. And then notice he signs off, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I pray, he said, this book will change your life as it did mine. It already had changed my life. He didn't even know it. I don't know why I got emotional. It's so cool. The word of God is so powerful. We don't have to make things up. The word has intrinsic power in and of itself. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces even through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What else do we need? That's why Paul says, preach the word in season. When it's, when it's a good time, when it's a bad time, preach the word. No one likes a dead or dull personality. Amen? And those who preach the word in a perfunctory, dull, or boring way, even truthfully, should get out of their pulpits. But where preaching is merely personality-driven, The listeners are on dangerous ground. Powerful, entertaining, sometimes soothing, and often convincing preaching. If it is not biblically saturated, is like slowly poisoning the bloodline of your congregation. In that sense, the dull dull preaching is preferred. Both are just they're just wrong. Recently, a young woman in our church came to me and told me about sitting under a motivational preacher, or a preacher, might as well have been a preacher, speaker, and she was telling me that it was one of these multi-level marketing group motivational speakers, and they said this, and I quote, facts don't matter if the dream's big enough, and your business will grow if you run with ignorance on fire, unquote. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I know of churches that could use that as a motto. But to also reveal, it also reveals rather how easily swayed our human nature is by personality. Right? All, but, but false teachers are good at that. Dreaming without facts. Ignorance on fire. Remember what Jeremiah said? Let the prophet who has his dream tell his dream. Let him who has my word speak it faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Is not my word like a fire, like a hammer that shatters the rock, saith the Lord? A a lot of what people are hearing in many churches today is little more than children's church for adults. more sad we like it we've developed taste to that end 
Remember what the writer of Hebrews said? I, you know, I, I really can't give you a strong word. You still need. I can't give you meat. You're still on. Yeah, you got it. Faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the message of Christ, the word of Christ. So, my first question I, that, that I just, as I think this thing through is just, what are we hearing? What are we listening to? What are you listening to? The second thing is I want to focus on the preaching because he says, uh, he says pre, who, how, will they, how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? The word preach is the, is the word keridzo. It means to proclaim. It doesn't mean to get into a pulpit. It's not just talking about a man. This can apply to a woman. This can apply to a kid. We are all called to preach the gospel. Can I get an amen on that? Gee whiz, we take Baptist out of the name, you can't say amen anymore? There we go. Listen carefully what I'm going to say here. Preaching does not require great vocabulary. It just requires God's vocabulary. The word of Christ. And his vocabulary is profoundly simple. Did you know, I did a study on this, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. 1,084 words. You can verify all this. 1,084 words. 84% of that sermon are one-syllable words. 84%. Let me give you just two lines. Two lines. Uh, here's one. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him. You know, the other. That's 24 words. 24 words, three of them. Three of them are two-syllable words. 21 one-syllable words. My first wife used to challenge me after I'd preach. As You know, when I was young, and I, I tried to impress people, I'd use words I didn't understand, but I could pronounce them. And she'd say, why are you using those 50-cent words? And uh, so, you know, praise God, she went to heaven. She doesn't tell me that anymore. And God brought Abe Miller into my life. No, I'm not married to Abe. Thank God for that. But he does the same thing. So why'd you use that word? Couldn't you use one that would make more sense? Well, yeah, I guess. Listen, stop worrying about whether you can, you know, about being super articulate or, you know, or highfalutin in your terminology. Don't let your lack of education Stifle you either. Proclaim God's word. It's simple. It's powerful. Jesus did it. That's a pretty good person to follow. Last I checked. D.L. Moody had a fifth or sixth grade education tops, but people couldn't get away from him. They were, they were constantly receiving his message because it was so profoundly simple, and he kept giving them scripture. Preaching does not require great vocabulary. It simply requires God's. Put that in your life. 
Here's another focus. Focus on sending. The focus on sending. That's the last in this reverse chronology. How, you know, how are they going to preach unless somebody's sent? We send people here. I send you every single Sunday to go out and take this, what you've learned, and give it to somebody else. Talk to people about Jesus. We are a gospel-centered church. At least that's what our desire is, right? Because we love Jesus. We love what he's done for us. But let's, make no, let's, let's, let's not get anything goofed up in the chronology here. God is the one who sends. The church simply affirms the sending. Remember, Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers, right? In fact, literally thrust forth, throw them out into his harvest. When it comes to the true call to mission work, God sends. The church affirms the call and then supplies the needs. And we see that in more than a rudimentary way in Paul's life. I mean, I had a guy come to us a number of years ago, and he was convinced he was called to be a missionary, and uh, I evaluated him, another guy on staff evaluated him, completely separate of one another, we both came to the same conclusion, and the reason is because there was no evidence of his call, no souls were being saved, nobody was following him, it was a pitiful situation, I mean, I think he loved Jesus, of that we were, we were sure. But we had to lovingly tell him that we can't see the call of God in his life. And he said, well, then he just walked away. He left. He's still not in the ministry anywhere. He's not going to be. In, well, he could probably put himself in there. That'd be a tra- you know, just travesty if he did. Now, granted, the church has not always recognized the hand of God on men. Remember William Carey, the father of modern missions, standing before a board of men talking about the heathen? written a, a long pamphlet on how we need to reach the heathen. And the famous line was, came from one of those individuals evaluating him. Sit down, Mr. Carey. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. That literally happened. Now, the guy wasn't saying that Carey wasn't called. He wasn't, he wasn't denying there wasn't something fervent, passionate, and blessed about this man. He just didn't see the need. That's a different story. But when we see God's hand on a man, we send him out. And all of us are called to the lost. And and when we do, when we go to lost people, when we go to lost people, we, we enter into the fraternity of beautiful people, God's beautiful people. Look at that verse. Look at it. Look what he says here. He says how... And he quotes from, he's quoting from Isaiah. How beautiful, verse 15, are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet. I was struck by this many years ago, how it's feet that bring the gospel. And no amount of advancement in culture, technology, travel, or anything is ever going to change that. Ever. Not technology, not TV, not satellite, not simulcast, not texting, not emailing, feet. And I'm not against any of those means of communication, nor would I deny that God would use them. Of course he would. 
And of course he does, but they pale. They pale in comparison to to what God himself has ordained as the primary means of saving his elect. Beautiful feet. Check out your feet. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but there's nothing, it's just fascinating to me. There's nothing particularly beautiful about feet. I mean, you look at everybody's talking about every other body part, but they don't talk about feet very much. That shows you where God's value is and where men's are. And so, I mean, back in the earlier days of church planning, we had a, a, a very sad but fascinating exchange between a highly intellectual individual who wondered how how it was that he was not being considered. Uh, and this other guy, who was not nearly in his camp intellectually, was being, you know, just being exalted almost by the staff and by the church. And I mean, it was, the pride was just making me sick, but it's just the same. My, 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 my first thought was, you know, Psalm 75, God... You know, that exaltation doesn't come from the east or the west, but God is the judge who lifts up one and puts down another. You ever read that? But then I got thinking, I think this, the, the real simple answer is God sees those who bring the gospel to others as, as beautiful. That's a beautiful thing to God. And that's why God raised the one man up and not the other. That's the reason why Moody said most people's Bibles should be wrapped in shoe leather. And then finally, the focus on, focus on the love of God rejected or received. And, you know, verses 19 and following shows the writer is sort of incredulous. You know, he's, you know Israel hasn't received this. The, the word's gone out. It shows how incredulous the work of proclaiming truth can be. I mean, from time to time, I hear Christians say, I would just think everybody would want this. I've heard this a number of times even. I love the naivete. I, I mean, wouldn't everybody want this? You would think so, right? But not everybody perceives their need, right? Talked to somebody just the other day who shared with his brother. Smart guy, business guy guy who does research on everything, and he did a wise thing. He said to his brother, he said, you know, you research everything else. Why don't you research Christianity before you reject it? And he wasn't interested in that. This just shows the blindness of it all. And, and he says here, in, and he talks about the jealousy in verse 19, uh, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. He's going to basically say the same thing in chapter 11 when we get to it. It's kind of like the, what is God doing to Israel through the nations coming to Jesus and them being set aside? I, I mean, it's a little bit like, an, like you know, the ex-girlfriend who dumped you suddenly becoming jealous because you got a new girl. You know, that's the hope of the church's impact on Israel that they'll see the greater love that they've, they've rejected, so to speak. And verse 20, he says, 
I've been found by those who did not seek me. I love that line. Because that's just so me. I love the word found. It's, uh, it's the word, we get our English word eureka from this word. Eureka! Like, you know, it, it, it literally carries the idea of discovery. Divine serendipity. That's a 50 center for anyway. I'll show myself, he says. I'll show myself to the one who wasn't asking, which I love because that basically was the Apostle Paul's testimony. His abbreviated version of his testimony is found in Galatians 1 where he says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Isn't that cool? He wasn't looking, but God was. And to those of you who aren't looking, or maybe you're resisting, the last verse has God with his arms extended, extended towards you. I'm holding my hands out, holding my arms out to this disobedient, this obstinate people. And he, I know he's talking about Israel, but he's also talking about some of you. You've heard it again and again. And it's like Jesus who stood over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you together like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Um, how many here are grandparents? Raise your hand. All right, there's a lot of you here that are grandparents. It's sort of a, a wonderful and frustrating thing at the same time, isn't it? I might, one of my granddaughters, you know, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I walked in the house, Papa! And she just exploded off her chair and dove into my arms. I loved it. I saw her not two days later, expecting the same thing, walked up to her and she went. <laughs> Somebody else comes to her. The grandfather of all fathers stretches forth his hands to Israel and to us. The last picture in this section of Scripture is, a miss, is, is in this missionary section, rather, is God himself holding out his everlasting, all-powerful, ever-loving arms to those who he does not desire to perish but to come to repentance. And what are they doing? Just like some of you are doing right now. Will you continue to push him away or will you receive him? What are your spiritual tastes this morning? Are you following personalities or are you following God? Whose vocabulary are you using? A dictionaries or God's? Do you love your body? How about your feet? How are they looking? Are they beautiful? And where are you at anyway in this divine sequence of things? Some of you are 
are just hearing the message because somebody's been sent to you. Some of you are just taking it in because somebody's preaching it to you. Some of you are, because you're hearing it, you're at that point of belief. It's, it's making sense. And that which, that which will save you is that sense of de- desperation from your heart where you call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Where are you in that sequence? As we conclude our time around the Lord's table, think about what Jesus did. Perfect life, sacrificial death, subsequent resurrection, all for you, and he holds his hands out. Will you push him away? Let's pray as the deacons come and we prepare for uh, the communion table as well. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And thank you so much for your great salvation, for the sequence of events, even in reverse chronology, as many of us look back on our lives and we remember the things that went into our salvation. Our Father, we are very, very grateful today that we can celebrate your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus, and our call to tell others about you, to have beautiful feet, And I pray, Lord, that you would just challenge us in any way that you would deem necessary by your spirit today. Draw us near to you as we celebrate your table. In Jesus' name, amen.